I understood according to our religious tradition, Jesus was not born on December 25th, and our church did not celebrate his birth at this time of year. Most of my school friends thought otherwise, thinking that Jesus was the reason for the season. And I remember our family yearly visited a sprawling nativity scene in Nashville erected by the, beside the Parthenon by a local department store from 1953 to 1967. I have a picture of it on the screen behind me. As years passed, I came to understand that the time of Jesus' birth is debated and that the Bible says nothing about Christmas as we know it. It does not mention St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, or that Jesus is the reason for the season. I then came to realize that many people who know little or nothing about Jesus acknowledge him and in some way celebrate his birth during this season. Well, this brings me to the sermon today, and it's a sermon that I call The Baby in the Manger and the Man on the Cross. I think we cannot go wrong by considering what the Bible says about Jesus. So let's begin. Now let's start this morning by thinking about the baby in the manger. Two of the four Gospels record the birth of Jesus, Matthew in chapter 1, Luke in chapter 2. Matthew begins his Gospel with Jesus' genealogy, tracing him back to David and then to Abraham. And following the genealogy, Matthew records a straightforward account of Jesus' birth. I want to read that this morning in Matthew 1, beginning at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And this is a quote from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, Matthew says, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So a straightforward account from Matthew. Luke, in chapter 2, cites the historical setting of Jesus' birth. He gives us people and places, and he describes both the location of his birth and a few of the circumstances. And characteristic of Luke, he focuses on people who surrounded Jesus when he was born. He, talk, he tells us about shepherds in the field who visited the baby lying in the manger and left glorifying and praising God. He tells us about Simeon, a righteous and devout man, waiting for the consolation of Israel, who took the baby up in his arms and blessed God. And Luke tells us about Anna, an 84-year-old widow who lived in the temple, a lady who worshipped daily with fasting and praying, and who thanked God and told people about Jesus. So Jesus' birth from these records was an astounding event. Though only a few people in the world knew about it at the time. Only a few people knew that God was visiting our planet. The baby was called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He was, these accounts tell us, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. 
He was born in a small village called Bethlehem, which was the city of David, the king. He was announced by angels to bewildered shepherds. And he was celebrated by a heavenly host who praised God for his glory and peace he was bringing to the world. So we should be aware, however, that the world's perception of Jesus' birth has been influenced by songs and nativity scenes much more than by scripture. And my intention this morning is not to be overly critical and certainly not negative, but to make us aware that several ideas and scenes featured in the songs are inaccurate. We hear about stars looking down where he lay, the little baby asleep on the hay. We hear about a little drummer boy with Mary nodding and the ox and lamb keeping time, pa rum pa pum pum We have Jesus visited on the night of his birth by shepherds and by wise men, though it was a year and maybe as much as two years when the wise men came. So such songs and scenes give us a warm and fuzzy feeling about Jesus' birth. We, we know about a baby in a manger looking sweet and making a, no demands on our lives. But, but when we read Scripture carefully and thoughtfully, an entirely different scene emerges, and it's not all warm and fuzzy. So let me show you. The Gospels include some rather harsh realities about Jesus' birth. He was born in a stable, Luke tells us, because there was no room in the Bethlehem Inn. Mary and Joseph's sacrifice for purification and dedication indicates that they were likely poor, that Jesus' earthly parents were poor people, offering just two turtle doves as their sacrifice. A righteous and devout man, Simeon, observed that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And his parents finally had to flee to Egypt to protect Jesus from Herod's attempt to kill the baby. Matthew chapter 2. So the Gospels include some harsh realities. In addition, Jesus' birth is not the focus of the Gospels or the preaching of the Gospel later that we read about in the book of Acts. Two of the Gospels contain nothing about Jesus' birth, but all four feature much about his death. And the New Testament preaching did not mention Jesus' birth anywhere, but especially the, those who preached emphasized his resurrection. Think about the sermon on Pentecost that we read in Acts 2. It was all about the resurrection. Peter said, the Jews put him to death, but God raised him up. This is what the scripture said would happen, and this is what the apostles witnessed. And when Luke gives a summary, he notes that the Jewish leaders were irritated by the apostles, according to Acts chapter 4, because they were claiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And Paul later stated that he was on trial because of the message of the resurrection. Acts chapter 23. So Jesus' birth was not the focus of the Gospels or the preaching in the New Testament. And then I want you to notice that several statements connected with Jesus' birth actually contain references to his death. Joseph was to call the baby Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the angel announced that the child who is born for you is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, what's implicit in Jesus being the Savior is brought out clearly by Paul in Philippians 2 when he talks about the mind of Christ. Listen to this. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what I'm trying to help us see this morning is the ultimate significance of Jesus' birth is that it made possible his sinless life. 
and his sin-bearing death. The ultimate significance of his birth is that it made possible his sinless life and his sin-bearing death. Scripture contains an inspired record of Jesus' birth, so it is a matter of interest and emphasis. We can hardly condemn people for thinking about any aspect of Jesus' life on earth. But consider the balance of his revelation. Two Gospels describe Jesus' birth. All four describe his death and his resurrection at far greater length and much more detail. Jesus, as we have just participated in this morning, gave us a memorial of his death, the Lord's Supper, but not of his birth. So when you consider Scripture as a whole, the emphasis of God's message is on the cross and the empty tomb, not the manger. So this brings us to the next part of our study today, and that is the man on the cross. We move from the baby in the manger to the man on the cross. The baby in the manger was real. We definitely and significantly rejoice that God became man, that God was with us. It was good news of great joy for all people. It was an important and wonderful event. But we must allow the scripture's central message to be spoken and its main point to be emphasized. And in deference to his birth, some dimensions of what occurred are often missed entirely. One thing that I've noticed that is overlooked is that Jesus didn't remain a baby. Luke chapter 2, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke 2, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus grew to be a man, and around 30 years old, he began to preach. And he preached and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He showed himself to be the Son of God, who would save people from their sins. And he said he would lay down his life for people's sins, like a shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus' birth, this is a main point, Jesus' birth was not an end in itself, but it was a means to an end. The manger bearing the baby was replaced by the cross bearing the Savior. In Jesus' own words, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In no uncertain terms, the Bible takes us from the crib to the cross. And as appealing and attractive as the birth of Christ is, it's his death on the cross that Scripture highlights. It is his death on the cross that demands our attention. So I want us to think seriously about that this morning. The man on the cross was there to bear our sins. I want to go to Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul explains this. Listen to this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's get a, big, big, a clear picture of those for whom Jesus died. Paul said they're helpless, ungodly, Sinners who are guilty, objects of God's wrath, and God's enemies. So who are these people? Well, they're us. They're you and they're me. Jesus was on the cross to bear our sins. So let's get the facts before us. Jesus died for us, Romans 5 verse 8. Jesus died for our sins, 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you are healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. The man on the cross is the one and the only one who brings us to God. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then in a dramatic statement, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he who was without sin was made to be sin on our behalf, was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The cross confronts us with the fact that there Jesus stood in our place. He bore our sins. He died the death that we deserve. He paid the debt that we owe but cannot pay. Our world sings joyously, proclaiming that on a silent holy night in the little town of Bethlehem, a Savior was born. And that was a wonderful night. It was a wonderful night. But it's not the whole story. Scripture declares that a sinless man died and that his death made him the Savior of the world. The cross confronts us with the fact that we need saving from sin and that we may be saved only through Jesus' death. So the man on the cross, the man on the cross calls for our faith and obedience, for our lives and our love. Jesus said, John 12, verse 32, He said, And I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He said his death on the cross would be God's drawing power. Jesus calls us to himself to follow him and to have the salvation that he accomplished by his death. The Apostle Paul explains and exhorts in, a, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the word is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And this word includes what we must do. People on the day of Pentecost heard about Jesus and his resurrection. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter's answer was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gospel preached today should be nothing less than this. It should be nothing less than the same Christ, the same cross, and the same call to obedient faith. A silent night, a babe in a manger, and singing angels stir our emotions. And so they should. We must appreciate the fact that Jesus Christ, the Lord, was born. The scripture points us from the manger onto the cross where we are confronted with sin, our own sin, and we are called to obedient faith in the Savior who died for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And beyond stirring our emotions, that needs to stir our minds and needs to, to stir our lives. So we must think carefully and thoroughly and accurately. That's what I'm trying to accomplish today. The nativity scene, if you think about it, is not a disturbing scene. It doesn't hurt our self-image. doesn't force us to be accountable for what we've done. We can look in the stable and just keep living the way we want to live, remaining firmly in charge of our lives. The little baby says nothing, does nothing, just lies in the hay looking sweet. The baby in the manger makes no demands on our lives. But we must look where God wants us to look. 
And so he tells us in his word, Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Dare we risk looking, really looking, really looking at the man beaten and bloody, dragging his own cross through the city streets so he could suffer and die on it for our sins. God in Scripture commands us to do nothing less than this. So we must not insulate ourselves from the whole story. We adore the baby in the manger, but God calls on us to come with, to grips with a man on the cross, the man who demands your heart, your life, and your all. He demands your heart, your life, and your all. And that's God's call for us today, that he demands by this man on the cross, this man who was born and lived and grew up and began preaching, who performed great miracles and preached great sermons, who calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. So the question today is, will we answer his call with our faith, with our obedience, with our lives? Will we answer his call with our lives? Too many times we just look glibly at what the Bible says and don't understand it in terms of our own lives. That God be merciful to me, the sinner. And he will do that by his remarkable grace in the, in the cross of Jesus. So this morning we're going to stand and sing. We're going to stand and sing that we may offer the Lord's invitation. Just as I am, I come broken. But Jesus came to do something about that brokenness. That we can help you in your own life to follow him and be faithful to him. We stand ready to do that. And let's do that now. Let's stand and sing.